And now our scripture reading is from Psalm 137, verses 1 through 9. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carrie Lynn. Thanks for welcoming us and reading God's word for us this morning. And uh, thank you for coming to our very first second service here at the Brookside campus, if, especially if this is your first Sunday with us at Christ Community. Thank you so much for coming and for doing that what I think is one of the hardest things to do, walk in the doors of a new church for the first time. Thanks for, for doing that, for being with us. We're so glad that you're here and hope that you feel welcome and, uh, and learn and have a great time uh, with us together as a church family uh, this morning. Um, before we look at Psalm 137, uh, as Scott mentioned earlier, we've been in a series learning how to pray. And so I'd love to pause and just ask prayer, uh, to, to pray and ask God to help us to learn to pray from this psalm and even and help in understanding this passage. So let's begin there right now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've given us the treasure uh, that is uh, your word written down that we can meditate on and learn from and grow, and that it is a, a means of, of modeling and teaching us to pray. So I pray now as we look at this psalm that you would teach us how uh, to pray um, through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after you heard Psalm 137 read, we do what we do every week. We say, thanks be to God. But I wonder if that felt a little harder to say after a cry to bless those who dash the Babylonian children on the rocks. It's almost like this moment of, wait, is, is that really in the Bible? Did I, is this the right version? Is this really here? And as I began studying this passage several weeks ago, I kind of wondered the same question. How does this really fit in to the overall story of the Bible? You see, as modern Western people, we struggle deeply with psalms like this. And this isn't the only one. This is probably the most extreme of them. But there are other passages like this in the psalms. And I think as modern Western people, we struggle with these psalms for a, a number of reasons. First of all, the historical distance. So this is, we're separated by 2,500 or so years from the time when these events were taking place, from the situation the psalmist and his people were in. And it's, it's hard for us to grasp, to feel what it was like to be in their shoes. When we talk about some of those dynamics later on, hopefully we'll have a better sense of that. But there's also not just a historical distance, there's also a cultural difference. You know, for us as white Midwesterners, and that's not all of us here this morning, that's many of us here this morning, uh, are white Midwesterners, 
And we tend to have a much more passive, aggressive culture, right? So if you were a white Midwesterner, probably one of the things that you heard over and over again from your mom was, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And we don't quite have the extreme reputation for politeness that the the Canadians do. You know, that's kind of the Canadian stereotype of, of uber politeness, but we're not far off from that. And so when we come to a psalm like this, it just strikes us as off. But it's important to remember that not every culture throughout history, around the world, or even in Kansas City today has that tendency. For example, uh, Latino and African American cultures often approach these things very differently. Also, as white Midwesterners, again, which many of us in the room are, we have a remarkably peaceful and secure experience. And many of us have not experienced anything like what the psalmist described. And, And that's a gift. I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's an incredible gift. I mean, some of you in the room have experienced things that are incredibly difficult. But most people at most time have not experienced the peace, access to freedom, expectation of justice and due process in the legal system that that many of us are able to more or less take for granted. Again, I know that's not everyone in this room, but for many of us that's true. And so the question is for us then, given the historical distance the the cultural difference, is there really anything that this psalm has to say to us? Does it really have anything to teach us about prayer? Can can we even make this psalm our prayer? We've talked about throughout the series that we can make the psalms our prayers. Can we make this psalm our prayer? Or should we just sort of hope hope that it, it stays tucked away, kind of in the middle of the Bible, as a historical relic of a past that was much more violent and less civilized and doesn't really apply to us today. As I wrestled with those questions over the last couple weeks, I've come to the conclusion that this psalm is still relevant for you and me today. That it does still have a place. It does have something to teach us in prayer. And this is why, and this is what I want us to, to take with us this morning, that God wants your anger because he will do something much better with it than you will. God wants your anger because he will do something much better with it than you will. We talk a lot about loss and grief and pain, and we should do that. We even had a whole message on lament, but we don't talk a lot about anger, at least not in church. I think we're afraid of it, and and loss is incredibly painful, and it, it, it moves us to grief, but sometimes we forget that loss involves anger. What do we do with that anger? Let me just say this morning that God wants it. God wants your anger because he will do something better with it than you will. I had a counseling professor in seminary who one of the first days of class just looked at us and said, I want you to know that that all of you are a lot angrier than you think that you are. Many of us tend to suppress anger. We, We tend not to understand what angers us or how angry we actually are. I remember him saying that and and kind of thinking, I'm not that angry. But the more I reflected on it, there is anger that resides in my heart that often I just don't know what to do with and so I just push it down. 
and prefer a kind of stoicism that leads to an unfeelingness and callousness. But when we come to the Bible, we find anger not suppressed, but we find it vividly, even in passages like Psalm 137, disturbingly on display particularly in these sorts of psalms, and they're known as imprecatory psalms. That's what this kind of psalm is called. There's different, you have praise psalms, thanksgiving psalms, lament psalms. This is called an imprecatory psalm. And an imprecation is simply a spoken curse. Uh, So maybe some of us driving here this morning uh, spoke some imprecations on the guy who uh, cut us off as we were trying to make that left-hand turn. Um, So this morning as we look at Psalm 137, we are hopefully going to see what anger and prayer have to do with one another, how they work one another out, how they're related, and what does the Bible have to say about anger, particularly when it comes to our prayer lives. And as we do this, we're going to see we really need to do three things when it comes to our anger. First, you need to own your anger, the good, the bad, the ugly, the right, the wrong of it, but own your anger. Secondly, then give that anger to God. And then finally, turn your anger to praise. So that's what we're going to walk through this morning. Own your anger, give your anger to God, and then turn your anger to praise. Before we turn to that first point, I just want to say, if this is your first Sunday here with us at Christ Community, we don't preach on passages like this every Sunday. Um, it does happen to be the first sermon I, I preached twice on a Sunday at Brookside, which is a little ironic, but uh, we, we want to preach all of the Bible, even the parts that we wouldn't naturally gravitate toward, even the parts that seem uncomfortable, even the parts that we don't always quite know what to do with at first, because we believe that all of this book is God's Word to us, and we want to understand how it applies to our lives. And as we look at Psalm 137, what we see first is that we are to own our anger. And this is what the psalmist does, really, in these first six verses where we get a glimpse of the source of the pain and anger that erupts into this full-blown anger at the end of the psalm in the last couple verses. You see it beginning in verse 1, where he says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. So Babylon is this enemy city. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. The people have been conquered by the Babylonians, and now they're captives. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. That's a kind of instrument. For there our captives required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. See, the psalmist is angry about the destruction of Zion, Jerusalem, his home city, God's city. And it's likely that this author, we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that he was an eyewitness to the horrible events that took place in Jerusalem when the Babylonians laid siege to the city and then finally conquered it and crushed it. The city was utterly ruined, and when the Babylonian victors finally overthrew the city, they did murder Israelite children and babies, dashing them on the rocks. The accounts of this in other places in Scripture, Jeremiah, Lamentations, you get these vivid and disturbing accounts of when the Babylonians came in, how they ripped open the pregnant women and killed the children. 
the psalmist and the people he loved experienced the most atrocious violence against the innocent. And it was made worse by the fact that their neighbors, the Edomites, who are mentioned again with great anger in this psalm, not only did the Edomites not come to the aid of Israel, but they actually mocked Israel as they were being destroyed and cheered the Babylonians on in their cruelty. So this is the historical context of the psalm. This is where the psalmist is at as he's writing these words. Most of the psalms in this section of the book of Psalms talk about God's enduring love for the everlasting city of Zion. They talk about how God will never let it be shaken. And actually in this section of Psalms, there's no other imprecatory psalms either. So Psalm 137 really feels kind of out of place here. It's almost like the editors who compiled all the psalms into one collection, they didn't quite know what to do with this psalm. Where do we put this? Well, let's just stick it in book five, and maybe nobody gets to book five anyway. We'll just leave it there toward the end. But Israel's torment, it didn't just end with the destruction of the city. It it continued, because those who did survive the siege and the overthrown work were then taken as trophies, as slaves back to Babylon, where they were made to sing songs for their captors. I mean, can you imagine this? You've watched your home be destroyed. The people that you love have been brutally murdered. You've been taken from your home. You're in a country you don't speak the language, and you are there by the river, and you're tormentors come and say, sing about how your God, the, the only God, sing about him and, and how he destroyed his temple. Sing about how important that city was that we destroyed and crushed under our fist. And again, you know, we, we can kind of begin to feel that, but it, I think it's so hard for us, the historical distance, and, and most of us haven't experienced anything like that. But in the film, 12 Years a Slave, which is about slavery in the context of the United States and our history, gives us a glimpse of what it must have been like to be made to sing songs of joy by your captors and your oppressors. Our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, joy, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see, in, in light of all of this, the, the psalmist's anger is legitimate. And, and he owns his anger. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't ignore it. He fully and legitimately owns it before God. And once we begin to understand a bit of the context, a bit of what he and his people had gone through, I think at least some of our initial revulsion at what's written here is tempered. And you know that even though you and and I probably have never watched our own children be murdered or experienced that kind of extreme violence, I think most of us are much closer to that kind of anger expressed in Psalm 137 than we'd like to believe. I mean, think about some of the moments just over the last 20 years in our own country. What you felt like when you watched those planes fly into the Twin Towers, when you heard about the Boston Marathon bombing, 
You know, it didn't take us long as a people to be ready to go drop some bombs, to launch a massive manhunt. The second that we really experience that kind of violence and injustice, even in small doses, that anger, it wells up in us. And we tend to think of, of anger as wrong or sinful, and it often is. But the Bible is much more nuanced in how it addresses anger. It doesn't paint it with all the same brush. And if you've been with us over the course of this psalm series, you may remember back in Psalm 4 when we were looking at that particular passage, it actually says, be angry and do not sin. So so the Bible has a category for a type of anger that isn't sinful. In fact, it even calls us to be angry. It commands it. And anger of this kind is anger that shows a proper outrage at sin and those it's destroying. As we look through the pages of Scripture, we see that God gets angry, that Jesus gets angry because he loves the world and his people so much when he sees it being ravaged. By evil and sin, anger is the result. I mean, think about when you have someone that you love who's being threatened, who's in danger. That feeling of of anger that comes. We need to own that. Again, the command in Psalm 4 is not when you're angry, don't sin. It's, It's be angry, but be angry at the right things. And this is key. We have to be angry at the right things. And I want to suggest this morning that all of us, every one of us here has an anger problem, but it's not the same anger problem. Some of us get mad at the wrong things. Probably all of us do at times. And this is usually rooted in idolatry and love of self. So we get angry because, you know, we're we're impatient with our spouse or with our kids or with a friend or with traffic or our boss. But usually that anger is, is rooted in who, it's in, in getting our own rights, and it's rooted in selfishness, and I haven't been treated fairly or the way I deserve. And that kind of self-centered anger, that kind of self-righteous anger, that is sin. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And it's in those situations that Psalm 137 absolutely does not apply It's also important to remember as we think about that, that that Psalm 137 is a communal psalm. It's it's a a psalmist asking on behalf of a people who have been oppressed. And that's a really key thing to notice. This isn't about a psalm, the psalmist isn't writing about an argument that he had with his next door neighbor about a dog that kept barking all night. This is about a people who have been violently oppressed. This is much more like the Nazis during World War II than I didn't get promoted at work, so God, would you please kill my boss's kids? But the other anger problem that some of us have, maybe even many of us have, is that we don't get angry at the right things. And this is rooted in indifference, in a lack of care and contact with what's really going on in the world. And I want to challenge you, challenge, and this is a challenge to me this morning. Do you actually get angry about things that don't personally affect you? That they're, they're wrong, they're, they're bad, but they don't really affect me personally, and so they don't really bother me all that much. 
a brutal, bloody civil war in Syria that's resulted in a massive refugee crisis. Are we angry about that? Closer to home, what about Planned Parenthood's selling of body parts of aborted children? Or just the the broader practice of abortion in general in our culture? Have we become indifferent to that? Even as I say that, let me just say in, in a room this size with this number of people, there's no doubt that, that some of you have been directly affected by abortion. Either you've had one yourself or a partner who's had one. And I just want to say to you, you're, you're welcome here. And it isn't the unforgivable sin. And there's always hope in the gospel. And we'd love to help if that's your story. But abortion, in our context, it's It's legal. And when you think back to what the Babylonians did, it it was legal too. There was no Geneva Convention 2,500 years ago. Babylon was acting exactly as every other ancient Near Eastern nation acted when they conquered another people. But that doesn't make it any less wrong or horrific. What about the corrupt policing practices that in collusion with city governments in places like Ferguson and, and Baltimore and other bring shame and oppression and rob people of dignity and freedom? Or harsh mandatory minimum sentences for minor nonviolent drug offenses, the education crisis in Kansas City, Missouri and other urban districts across our country that, that deplete and rob children of an education that prepares them for the world. See, if, if we're never mad, if we don't ever get angry at those kinds of things in our world, it, it probably means we have a pretty anemic view of what the good is. If we never find ourselves getting angry at the evil and the wrong that's in the world, it probably means we don't actually treasure and love the good all that much. That was really convicting for me this week. What we end up saying if we have that kind of indifference is, you know, there's not really any evil. It's just complicated, and yeah, we need to fix some things, but there's nothing here worth really getting angry about. And this is why it's really important to listen to angry people. I think oftentimes our tendency is when we hear someone who's angry is to sort of just write them off or ignore them. But do we take the time to listen? What's really behind that anger? Is there something there? This is especially important if the person who you're listening to is a different color, a different culture than you. There may be something there that you've missed. So own your anger. The good, the bad, the, the ugly, the right, the wrong. And then give it to God. And this is what the psalmist does. At the very peak of his anger in verse 7, he doesn't just start shouting at his fellow worshipers or at the Babylonians. He begins to vent vertically. He, at the height of his anger, starts addressing God. He says, remember, O Lord, he's addressing God in prayer, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. 
And this psalmist doesn't hold anything back. He owns his anger. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't hide himself from God. But he gives his anger over to God. And this is a prayer after all. In prayer, we come to God as we are, not as we should be, not as we think we're supposed to be, but, and he knows what's in your heart. Bring it to him. Eugene Peterson, uh, reflecting on this very psalm, writes this. I think this is so helpful. He writes, our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. It's better to pray badly than not to pray at all. It's better to pray badly than not to pray at all. This is the place where those feelings get worked out. This is the place in prayer where you deal with that stuff. And he comes to God and he asks God to be judge. He says, remember Edom, remember Babylon. And when he says remember, the biblical sense of remember is much more than just take note of. He doesn't say, God, just jot down. Remember, don't forget this took place. The call to remember is a call to action. God, do something about this. There's lots of places in the Bible that talk about um, his, God's followers, his people remembering his word. And it's the same kind of thing. We know that remembering God's word doesn't simply mean just having a Bible in your house or having a, a smartphone with a Bible app on it. That's, it doesn't just mean having it recorded somewhere. It means remembering in a way that it shapes your life that you take action on it. In other words, he's saying, God, you remember this. You take action. I, I can't do anything about this. You've got to be the one to fix this. I'm going to place all of this awful evil that Bab, I'm going to put it in your hands. You fix this, God. You do something about this. And this is a really important distinction because he doesn't ask, God, would you let me take revenge on them? Would you raise us up as a people so we can crush them? He asks God to make a judgment. He says, bring justice to this people. You do this. And this is the major lesson of this prayer, that we learn to take our anger and say, I- I'm angry. What's happened is not right. And also, I'm not the judge. And this shows incredible faith. It's a complex act of faith to experience incredible wrong and suffering and injustice in your life and then trust God to be judge. The psalmist knows that only God has the ability, the wisdom, the right to judge. And he will. If you read on in the story, God does raise up another empire, the Syrian empire. (laughs) Cyrus comes and, and they destroy. The psalmist knows not only God has the ability but he's the only one who has the wisdom and the right to judge. And here's what we can't miss, is that anger isn't righteous until it reaches that point of saying, God, you have to be judge. God wants your anger because he'll do something much better with it than you will. So the important question here is, do you want vengeance or do you want a judgment? Do you want vengeance or do you want a judgment? When it comes to anger, do you want vengeance or do you want God to come and be judge? And there's a huge difference, and the difference makes all of the difference. And whether this prayer, whether this emotion is one that needs to be rightly given to God or one that we need to confess. 
See, asking for vengeance takes matters into our own hands. Vengeance says, I'm going to punish. I'm going to make this right. It's my responsibility. But here's the thing. Vengeance always lacks faith in God's goodness. Because the underlying assumption is that God can't or won't act to make this right. Vengeance it always is an expression of a lack of faith in God's goodness because it, it believes that, maybe not consciously, but subtly it believes that God can't or won't act to make this right. And, and if that's the case, that God can't act to make it right, if he won't act to make it right, then all we have is vengeance. All we have is revenge. It is on us to make it right. But the thing is, is that that only perpetuates the cycle of violence and retribution. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, who is from the former Yugoslavia, knows firsthand the atrocities of genocide. And he argues that the only way to keep people from taking their own vengeance is that, if they, is that you develop within them a deeply held belief that God will be judge. One of the popular critiques from the, kind of the, the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and others, is that belief in a, in a God who judges is the source of religious violence. And certainly misunderstood, perhaps that could be the case. But Miroslav Volf argues just the opposite, that actually the only way to stop cycles of violence is for people to trust that they don't have to take vengeance, that God someday will make it right. It allows people who have suffered great injustice to actually not enact revenge. He writes, this is Miroslav Volf, violence thrives secretly nursed by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Because if you don't believe God will judge, then it is up to you to make it right. Old Testament scholar Daniel Estes puts it this way, by placing the problems into God's hand, the believer avoids the real danger of righteous indignation degenerating into mere viciousness. The psalmist asks God to be judge, to make a judgment and to act, to declare it wrong and make it right. As Christians, we don't take personal vengeance, but we do allow our outrage against sin and evil to move us to plead with God to be judged, to plead with him to make it right. For us and for those who are oppressed and wronged, and I think some of us feel distance when we read a psalm like this because it's like, well, I don't know if I've ever been in a, a circumstance that merits the, I pray a prayer like this. Some of you have. But maybe you haven't been in that kind of situation. But there are millions of people today in our own country and around the world who have suffered terribly, who experience great evil and great oppression men and children, women who are trafficked for labor, prostitution, in war zones, victims of genocide. Can we learn to pray this on behalf of those 
who've had experienced this kind of violence, to act, to ask God to act, to be the judge, to eradicate the, the evil from the world. The psalm also acknowledges our culpability in wrongdoing. When, when we come to God in prayer and in anger, the psalms as a whole, they, they remind us that, that we are not without blame. None of us is without sin, and our own sin ought to grieve us and drive us to pray that God would heal our disordered loves and bring us into alignment with his kingdom and his reigns. We ought to experience outrage at our own sin and ask God to heal us, to fix us, to make us new. So what does a good, angry prayer look like today? What, is it, what does it sound like to vent vertically in Brookside in 2015? Let me just give maybe an example. I, I think it could sound something like this. God, would you bring judgment down? Would you destroy the wicked? Would you bring about justice either through them being coming to a saving relationship with Jesus or by bringing the ultimate final judgment on them if they reject him? And then simply saying, God, I trust you. I've given this to you and I trust you to make it right. Which brings us to our final point. First, you have to own your anger, then give that anger over to God, and then finally turn your anger to praise. Now, this isn't where Psalm 137 ends. It doesn't end with praise. But the book of Psalms doesn't end here, and certainly the Bible doesn't end here. You see, Psalm 137 is a part of a much bigger story from Genesis to Revelation that God is writing. So, for example, in Psalm 138, the very next prayer that if you're working through the Psalter that you pray is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. It begins with praise and thanks, and it ends this way. This is Psalm 138, verse 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. It ends in praise for God for his provision and protection. And Psalm 137 doesn't occur in isolation. Again, it's part of a bigger story, the center of which is the person and work of Jesus. And the psalmist didn't have access to knowledge about Jesus in the way that you and I do, but he trusted God to make it right. And Jesus is the ultimate answer to this prayer. But how? Well, God sends his own son, Jesus. Jesus shows up in Zion. He shows up in Jerusalem. All the songs of Zion asking for God to take up residence there forever. God does finally show up in the person of Jesus. But we killed him for it. He's nailed to a cross. And yet from the cross, Jesus doesn't call down judgment. He offers forgiveness. And that becomes our model just as the Edomites mocked Israel as they were being destroyed, people mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the, 
king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, in the end, there was a child who was dashed on the rocks. Jesus was dashed on the rocks for you and for me, for Babylon, for Edom, for every single one of us. You see, we all deserve the curse of Babylon. None of us deserves the promise of Zion. But the curse is placed on Jesus, and so the promise of Zion flows to us. So now the only thing that can condemn you if you're in Christ is the rejection of him. He is the just judge who now receives the punishment on himself so that he can set us free. At the end of the age, Jesus will be judge, and he will set all things to right, and all anger will be turned to praise. You actually see this in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, it's the final book of the Bible, and it gives us a glimpse of what God will do at the end to set the whole world right, to make it all new again. And you see there's great praise in that moment. Revelation 19, the apostle John, who's receiving this vision, he writes, and after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, This is where we get the hallelujah chorus from in Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, which is actually a reference to to Babylon, who conquered the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out hallelujah. All anger in the end will be turned to praise. And as a result, then God will dwell with his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, Revelation 21 says. See, when you have Jesus as your just and merciful judge, all your anger can ultimately be turned to praise. And you can be freed from vengeance, trusting in him, waiting on him to make all things right, to make all things new. And that, friends, is good news. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us resources in prayer, not just for praise, not just for thanksgiving, but for the whole range of of emotions that you have created us as people to experience.